This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Hello, my name is Kay Winnigal, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard on Radio Skid Row. Firstly, the latest in climate news. And there is some good news. According to The Age this week, Australia is on the brink of signing a clean energy agreement with South Korea that will allow for the use of hydrogen to make steel and transform the iron ore export industry. Alan Finkel, who is leading the Australian government's development of low emissions technologies, told South Korean and Australian business leaders on Tuesday the research would enable low emissions technology to be implemented across the whole iron ore supply chain. He said they included getting the iron ore out of the ground, sending it by train to the coast, putting it on zero emissions ships to Korea and making zero emissions steel using zero emissions ingredients in Korea, including hydrogen. Iron ore, Australia's largest export, is worth more than $100 billion a year. But Australian Bureau of Statistics figures show the extraction, production and transport of minerals across the mining sector account for 15% of the nation's greenhouse gases. Hydrogen is seen as the key to providing the high levels of baseload power needed in industrial production and transport without using fossil fuels. In another great story, we go to the Northern Territory. A few years ago, Sun Cable proposed building a 10 gigawatt solar array farm, which is now developed into close to a 20 gigawatt project. As part of the project, Sun Cable is developing the Australia-Asia Powerlink project, a $30 billion mega project, including the world's largest battery at a scale of 36 to 42 gigawatt hours and the world's longest subsea high-voltage direct current cable of around 4,200 kilometres. From 2028, the project intends to deliver 8.6 megaton of CO2 reduction and supply 15% of electricity needs in Singapore to match its entire climate abatement gap, as well as supplying renewable energy to Darwin. The battery is designed to operate with solar PV to create a dispatchable power plant that operates 24-7, delivering energy to Singapore in around 20 milliseconds. Around 97% of Singapore's electricity comes from gas, most of which is pipe gas from neighbouring countries such as Malaysia. The pipe gas to Singapore is expected to come to an end in the mid-2020s. The export capacity of the undersea HVDC cable would be about 2.2 gigawatt, or more than four times the current Basslink interconnector linking Tasmania and the mainland of Australia. At 4,200 kilometres, it would be more than 10 times as long. Sun Cable expects the venture will produce at least $2 billion a year in exports, create more than 1,500 jobs in construction, 350 operational jobs and 12,000 indirect jobs. Thanks for joining me for the second part of a very fascinating and challenging topic, geoengineering. The first episode dealt with what geoengineering is and the various geoengineering solutions that are currently being discussed, as well as the issues around it. In this episode, we have Professor Raymond Pierre Humbert 
talking about the issues with solar radiation management. And then Dr. Daniel Harrison informing us about a cloud brightening experiment being conducted over the Great Barrier Reef. Raymond Pierre Humbert is a Halley Professor in Physics at University of Oxford, having previously served on the faculties of MIT, Princeton and the University of Chicago. His work on physics of climate has covered climates of Mars and Titan and of the response of Earth's climate to human-caused increases in carbon dioxide. Pierre Humbert was a lead author on the IPCC third assessment report. So here he is talking about his views on geoengineering and in particular solar radiation management. Now globally there's as we discussed many questions surrounding geoengineering options both for solar radiation management and carbon dioxide removal. Where do you sit in this debate? Well, actually, first of all, I start off, I, uh, I really discourage the use of the term solar radiation management. This was something that was introduced by pro-geoengineers, geoengineering boosters to uh, try to normalize it and make it seem uh, routine and unscary, like, you know, inventory management. But there's no sense in which we know enough about the climate system to say we would be managing solar radiation or anything like that. And so uh, I, uh, there are various other terms like, like solar, solar geo engineering or uh, albedo modification which are which are uh, uh, more value neutral uh, as it were but uh, uh, but that that's that's where I would start with it we should actually discuss this in the terms that uh, are appropriate to the level of uncertainty and what we would be doing if we actually start to hack the planet especially with regard to the schemes to reflect uh, reflect sunlight back to space mm-hmm. okay. So with the Paris Agreement, we currently have a global commitment to try and keep the Earth's average temperature increase to less than two degrees, and there are many types of different strategies used around the world to try and achieve this. Do you think what's being done now will be able to keep the Earth's average temperature increase to less than two degrees? What's being done at the moment doesn't have a prayer of keeping the Earth's temperature below two degrees. uh, it's a question of what will happen between now and 2030 uh, as the uh, as the measures actually start to be implemented, if they actually start to be implemented. There is still time to keep the Earth's temperature below two degrees uh, of w- warming relative to pre-industrial times uh, if we get serious about carbon dioxide uh, reduction. Uh, it will probably require at least a small amount of actual extraction of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere uh, in order to do that, uh, because it will be difficult to get all the way to zero emissions uh, in, in time. And uh, we need to work very hard on developing the technologies that would allow at least a small amount of carbon dioxide removal to, to mop up uh, the residual emissions after we get really close to zero CO2 emissions. Uh, but but there's there's definitely time to do it uh, to to do it um, uh, if we get really serious about deploying the technologies we already know work. Now, uh, one of the threats of solar geoengineering, uh, solar radiation modification, whatever you want to call it, one of the threats is that it, it gives the the whole fossil fuel dominated sectors an excuse to just continue business as usual if they think there is some cheap and painless fix for cooling the earth. 
then you'll go into a kind of a death spiral where, where we just have ever increasing amounts of uh, application of uh, sunlight reflection in a context of ever increasing amounts of carbon dioxide emissions. And that, that's, that's not a path that we want to go down. That's an extremely dangerous path. Yes, that's a good point. And there are many different types of carbon dioxide removal methods that are possibilities, but I guess none of them have been demonstrated to work adequately. And certainly here in Australia, we've been looking at carbon capture and storage and not getting very far with that, although our government would argue otherwise. Are there any methods that you know of that you would recommend? At this point, the technology for carbon dioxide removal and even just carbon capture and sequestration from power plants and uh, fossil fuel uh, operations and things like that, it's, it's in its infancy. And the danger with carbon dioxide removal is, is that people may think they can rely on the technology before we, we know whether it will ever actually uh, be deployable at scale. So there is a, a, a risk there. But it's the sort of technology that that would be a significant part of the portfolio of actions if it ever becomes deployable at scale. And so we're at the point where virtually every opportunity, virtually every kind of technology for uh, carbon dioxide removal and sequestration uh, should be researched. It's just getting a a trivial amount of money compared to the investment in fossil fuel exploration, uh, and it it deserves to to have a high priority. But it should be admitted, we, we do not know whether it will ever be deployable at scale. Well, could you take us through some and, and give us oh, an yeah, idea? Oh, yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah, for carbon dioxide removal, of course, you know, people think about trees, uh, you know, planting trees uh, as uh, as the so-called natural solution. And um, that's actually, I think, a kind of a problematic solution in that right now, with the rate of deforestation around the world, the main task will be to just just uh, restrain deforestation to the point where at least deforestation is not an additional source of carbon dioxide. With land-based carbon carbon uptake methods, uh, all that carbon is being stored in living trees, living plants, uh, and uh, very close to the surface of the soil, uh, where it's very close to oxygen, which wants to recombine with that uh, by biological means or by fire. Uh, to release the carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. So it's not even correct to call that sequestration. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a very fragile place to store carbon. So I, I do think that, that there, there is some promise in doing a little bit of the job by the so-called natural solutions, land use changes, uh, although it's, it's, it's going to be a, a tough road to hoe, uh, even to get to the point where we, we stop the net, the net source of carbon dioxide from land practices. And that's, of course, the f- first order of business. But it's the technological means. Um, the, first of all, uh, you, you could uh, isolate carbon dioxide from the emissions of power plants and then react it with minerals that turn it into a solid form like limestone or, or store it in geological formations, prefer, preferably ones where it will turn into solid form underground and uh, minimize the risk that it will leak back out. And then the next uh, harder thing though, is to actually scrub carbon dioxide out of the air 
which is not as unfeasible as it might sound. The, but uh, you, the problem is that the, the uh, proportion of carbon dioxide in the air is actually rather small. So you have to sift through a large volume of air to get, get the carbon dioxide molecules out. And once you've separated them, again, you, ha you have to store it someplace. But there are various technologies based on, uh, on carbon dioxide sticking to certain uh, advanced materials. Uh, that have been researched as a way of carbon dioxide, getting carbon dioxide out of the air. But the, it's much easier uh, to keep carbon dioxide from getting in the air in the first place, rather than putting it into the air, letting it get diluted, and then, then trying to extract it back out again. Mm, of course it is. At the moment, I don't think that there are any of those technologies that have been demonstrated to work effectively. Apart from well, no, they they work at a laboratory scale. It's the yeah. question of cost. It's the question of the cost, and even in the much easier job of trying to capture carbon dioxide from power plants and and then store it someplace uh, where where it won't come back out again, uh, e even that though it's technologically easier uh, has 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 proven uh, to to present several serious engineering difficulties when people try to do it at scale. But, but all, all technologies uh, are difficult when you first get started. And what the problem is we don't know whether, whether carbon dioxide removal will take the path of computers, which, which have gotten enormously faster, extremely fast, or whether it will take the path of something like controlled thermonuclear fusion, uh, which people have been working on for 60 or 80 years. Uh, without uh, without still producing any usable technology. Many scientists argue that we don't have time and we have to try and implement as many options as we can. And, and one of the um, strategies that they suggest is that we try um, cooling the planet and develop those carbon removal technologies in the meantime because they're going to take longer and, as you say, cost more. What do you think of that idea? Well, that's a horrible argument because um, it, it puts the cart before the horse. And the main difficulty or the main problem with the argument that we, uh, that we should cool the climate by, uh, by putting something in the atmosphere to reflect sunlight back to space uh, and then hope that we develop some rescue tool, rescue technology in the meantime, is, is, is that uh, the, the particles you put in the atmosphere to try to cool, cool down the planet uh, if you put them high up in the atmosphere, the stratosphere, they only stay there for a year or two. Uh, and if you put them uh, down uh, over the ocean surface, like people are trying over the Great Barrier Reef, they only stay there for hours to a few days. Uh, so, so you have to continually renew that cooling each and every year, but the carbon dioxide continues to have a massive effect on climate for thousands of years. So if you get into a situation where you rely on this cooling to avoid catastrophe, then, then you're committed to doing it essentially forever. And a lot can happen in the next thousand years that could force people to stop it. Uh, now, uh, to actually deploy these cooling technologies before we actually know if there's a way to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is, 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 just, uh, is just like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute shoot and hoping somebody invents the parachute before you hit the ground. It's completely foolish. Uh, the people who, who uh, want to, um, uh, try to try to use cooling uh, of the planet uh, as part of the uh, portfolio of responses 
they, they really should be hoping or working on the development of the carbon dioxide removal schemes at scale uh, before there's any contemplation of using any of these extremely disruptive cooling technologies. Also, remember that at best, uh, at best, the uh, at best the uh, carbon dioxide removal technologies will deal with uh, you know, some small percentage of our current carbon dioxide emissions. And so, if you if you fail to get the carbon dioxide emissions to zero, you're committed to deploying ever greater amounts. Uh, of, uh, of uh, solar radiation modification uh, of, of reflecting sunlight back to space each and every year, just to keep up with the growing stock of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it's, it's not something that you can use to say buy time while we're trying to solve the problem. The world has been working on um, reducing its carbon emissions for a number of decades now, or supposedly working on it, and those emissions continue to go up no matter what the targets are, no matter what targets are being promised, how do you think that we can continue to go along with those promises but no strategies to remove the carbon dioxide? Oh, I, 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 I would dispute the claim that uh, we've been working on re reducing carbon dioxide emissions for several decades. People have been jawboning about it. But I would say it's only really in the last few years that uh, that governments have shown any sign of, of starting to get serious about it. And that's partly because uh, the, the effects of global warming on everyday life are starting to become so obvious uh, that they can't be ignored by politicians and climate deniers and, and so forth. And so uh, introducing something like solar radiation modification just at the time when there's the first glimmer of hope that the world is getting serious about reducing its emissions, that would be tragic. The next 10 or 20 years are, are a crucial time for actually implementing the things that are needed uh, to get the emissions down. Now, there has been progress in the sense that, uh, that in much of the developed world, uh, the uh, carbon dioxide emissions have at least remained fairly flat or gone down somewhat. China has a developing economy, their emissions are still growing, growing, but they have implemented a lot of renewable energy technologies that, uh, that have a very good chance of peaking their emissions and causing them to start going down uh, within a reasonable time frame. There are all sorts of hopeful developments uh, like the, uh, the, the gradual decline in the use of coal, uh, in the energy system, uh, developments like the uh, drastic reduction in the cost of wind and uh, photovoltaic and solar, solar energy, uh, increased battery technology, um, all of these things are, are, are coming up as solutions. But it's, it's a matter of political will. It's a matter of political will and, and countries, uh, governments like the Australian government that still stick their head in the sand and say that we're just, just going to continue our fossil dominated economies, uh, that that's not at all helpful. No, totally agree with you. And, you know, we're not only now a leader in terms of exporting coal, but also gas. And I know America is doing a lot with gas fracking and developing pipelines across Canada to America. You know, Russia does a, a, a lot of gas exportation. It doesn't feel to me as though we're going to be able to effectively decrease our carbon emissions within 10 years, which is what many scientists are saying have. Yeah, that, yeah that's wrong. That's that's just wrong. It's not, it's, it's not, uh, it, it, 
it's it's completely wrong to imply that that uh, we have 10 years to so-called as as some people say solve the problem uh we, we actually have more like 50 years 50 years to 60 years to to uh get carbon dioxide emissions uh, down to zero. Now it's true that we, we need to start seeing some actual decreases uh, uh, within the next 10 years or so uh, in order to you know, demonstrate that, that technologies are actually being uh, implemented at scale. But, but the, the, notion, the, the notion that there is some cliff edge where if we go past 1.5 degrees or if we go past two degrees, suddenly everything goes wrong uh, and there's no point in doing anything more. That's completely wrong because as long as there's any carbon left in the ground uh, that you could keep in the ground rather than burning, uh, there's still further harm to be, uh, there's still further harm to be avoided. So even if we blow past two degrees, it's still worth fighting to keep the uh, keep the temperature below three degrees warming, and there's really enough fossil fuel in the ground to take our temperature to six or probably eight degrees or maybe even more, which is a truly horrifying world with uh, existential risks for for large fractions of the Earth's pop Earth's population, uh, risks that uh, are just impossible to uh, to adapt to. No, but I think um, there are many tipping points in the next 10 years. No, no, there aren't. To worry there about aren't. What, well, they're the, already the, the, occurring, the, in fact. There's all sorts of loose talk about tip about tipping points. We don't know where those tipping points are. Uh, the the chances that that we will actually cross some kind of a, a tipping point where the climate flips over in the next 10 years uh, to some completely different state. That's that that's really not at all scientifically proven. Just in terms of the tipping points, we've got the Greenland ice sheet that's disintegrating as well as the West Antarctic ice sheet. We've got the permafrost ice that's um, being exposed and methane's coming through because of the, the thawing of the, the ice there. We've got the Amazon rainforest dieback. We've got the West African monsoon shifts. We've got the boreal forest shifts. Like there are many things that are happening and they're happening more and more quickly than scientists expected. So that's what we, we, we're getting more and more exposed to the longer we leave off any decision-making in terms of reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's true that, that reducing carbon dioxide sooner is better than reducing it later. But the only way to avoid those risks, and, and some of the risks you mentioned are actually overblown, the amount of methane released from, uh, from things like thawing permafrost and so forth, are, it's pretty minimal and, uh, and it's not, and there are a lot of reasons to believe it's not likely to get catastrophic. You know, the Greenland ice sheet melting, that's likely to take hundreds of, hundreds of years to actually um, do a significant amount of, of, de of deglaciation. But the thing is, insofar as those tipping points are there, you're, you're actually more likely to trigger them eventually uh, if we allow the CO2 to rise to, to a point where you have a lot of long-term warming, the longer the warming persists, the, the greater your chance of, uh, of triggering tipping points. Do you agree that there should be, scientists should actually be conducting experiments with solar radiation management? No, I don't think it's it's really warranted at this time because again, there, there's no. We already know what the what the big problems are, the, and the kinds of experiments that scientists want to do right now. And it's actually a very small group so far that wants to do any actual outdoor experiments. Uh, the the kinds of experiments they want to do right now 
are dangerous in that they develop the technology for deploying it without actually answering any of the really big questions uh, about uh, what dangerous things might happen if it were deployed. Things in terms of unexpected changes in rainfall patterns, the monsoons, uh, unexpected changes in clouds uh, that could undo your, uh, undo your warming or change the weather patterns drastically. All those things can't be answered short of something that approaches a large scale deployment. Uh, whereas these small scale experiments that some groups like the Harvard group want to do in the stratosphere, uh, they do actually uh, develop some of the engineering technologies that would enable somebody uh, to, to, deploy the, uh, to deploy the technology, but they don't actually uh, answer any questions about the risks. And some, some of the risks, like this termination shock risk that comes from the fact that CO2 stays around essentially forever, but you have to renew the uh, solar uh, radiation modification uh, continually. Some of those risks are, are uh, based on such 100% certain science that nothing is going to make those risks go away. Now, other things like computer simulations and so forth, those, those can be done uh, and they shed some light on, on uh, what the risks are uh, of solar radiation modification. Uh, and uh, there's some argument for continuing to do that at, at some level, at what level of funding compared to other priorities in climate scientists, I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture to say right now. Uh, what about then on a more localised level? The Australian government is pouring many, many, many hundreds of millions of dollars into trying to save the Great Barrier Reef. And one of the experiments that's being performed currently is um, cloud brightening. And if it does work, then it may allow the reef to recover every time there's a, a bleaching event, potentially. What do you think about that sort of experimentation? Yeah, well, uh, the, the the boundary layer cloud technique um, poses a number, a number of different kinds of challenges from the stratospheric uh, issues with regard to research governance, because in fact, we do, need, we do need to understand boundary layer clouds better. And it's hard to draw a line between the kind of experimentation uh, that we need to do in order to uh, understand clouds better generally, and the kind of experimentation uh, that is done for the sake of, of, of uh, climate modification. But one thing I will say is that is that no climate is really local. So people may think that this marine cloud brightening technique is, is less dangerous because it just affects temperature locally. But first of all, if you do it in too small of an area, it has, a, it has too small of an effect because you've got all that warm water in the surroundings waiting to rush in and heap things up again. You've got the warm air from the rest of the climate. So you have to do it over a pretty big area uh, which is going to be even more costly. You have to do it over a pretty big area uh, in order to, um, to have the temp kind of temperature reductions you actually want in the immediate reef area. It's not very surgical. And once you do it over a big enough area, uh, then given that all the parts of the climate system are connected together, uh, you start to affect weather patterns and climate patterns uh, more broadly. Uh, and it's not really a local thing anymore. The, the notion that you can just surgically change the temperature locally uh, and solve problems uh, to any great extent, that's probably misguided. But I think in addition, given that, uh, that the effect on clouds, the first, well, given that first of all, it's only in a, a rather special set of circumstances that injecting stuff into the atmosphere can stimulate the formation of more clouds so that it, it doesn't always make more clouds. 
And given that, secondly, clouds go away fairly quickly. So you have to have your ship tracks cruising back and forth and renewing those clouds very, very often. You need a big fleet of ships to do that. Uh, that that's going to run up costs. But, it, but the research governance for that sort of thing is problematic because uh, you don't want to have a chilling effect on the kind of research we, we do need to do about the effect of uh, aerosols, even sea salt aerosols, particles uh, on low clouds.
And that was a song by Julian Lennon called Saltwater. Now we have a cloud brightening project lead scientist, Daniel Harrison, discussing a project on the Great Barrier Reef that Professor Pierre Humbert referred to earlier that scientists hope could become a futuristic way to protect coral from global warming. Along with stratospheric aerosol injection, it is one of the two main solar radiation management methods. Dr. Daniel Harrison is an oceanographer and engineer at the National Marine Science Centre of Southern Cross University. He was awarded a Meyer Innovation Fellowship in 2017 to develop his concept of regional marine cloud brightening as a method for mitigating coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef. So, Daniel, you are the project lead scientist in what's been described as an ambitious cloud brightening early stage trial over Australia's Great Barrier Reef. Can you tell us when this experiment began and who commissioned it? Sure. So the concept began quite a few years ago now uh, amongst a a group of scientists and engineers that I was part of uh, that gathered at the Sydney Institute of Marine Science. And this was shortly after the the first recent mass bleaching event on the Great Barrier Reef. And we, we formed a working group to try and think through ideas that might be able to help prevent the coral bleaching. Uh, coming at it very much from a sort of a preventative kind of angle. And um, one of the ideas as we worked through a bunch of different ideas was was cloud brightening. And as many other ideas sort of fell away as, as we, we researched them and, and found that they weren't really feasible, the, the cloud brightening uh, has, has pursued as, as looking as a, a feasible solution. As to who, who has commissioned it, that's, that's changed over the years. Uh, we got some, some the, the, the idea was really kickstarted by a grant that I received a fellowship from the Maya Foundation. Um, and then that was followed up by some competitive funding from the Boosting Coral and the Great Barrier Reef Challenge, which was funded jointly by the Australian Federal and the Queensland state governments. And there was two rounds of that. So we, we got funded to do a feasibility study, which showed that the idea had, had legs so to speak. Um, and then the second round of that, we were funded to do a demonstration out on the reef um, to test the concept in, in the, the very first stages, essentially. So can you describe how it actually works, the cloud brightening? Sure. This is, this is something that's occurring all around us all of the time. Uh, when clouds form, each cloud droplet needs a, a tiny little particle in the atmosphere to nucleate around. And these particles are made up of all sorts of different things, especially over land, dust and pollution. But over the ocean, they're, they're mostly just made up of, of two things, either sea salt crystals that have been sort of formed from wind whipping waves and, and tiny little droplets form and those droplets evaporate and leave a salt crystal behind. And there's also a, a biological source of, uh, of these so-called cloud condensation nuclei over the ocean. And so the process that, that this technology replicates is, is the sea salt crystal process. So rather than relying just on the waves to, to create the sea salt crystals, we, we actually uh, help by taking the seawater and atomizing it into tiny little nano-sized droplets, which evaporate, leaving even smaller salt crystals behind. And those float around over the ocean. And when a cloud forms, if there are more of these salt crystals, the cloud's actually brighter. So it reflects more sunlight away. So effectively, it's just a great big pump that's pumping water into the atmosphere, is it? Well, the amount of water is actually vanishingly small. 
so so when we we create a, a, a droplet it's hard to get your head around how small a, a nano sized droplet is um you know they, these are things that are, are uh, nano is so small that it can sort of pass between the cells in your in your skin for example um and that's that's why you have sort of nano technology of medicine um but in in this case it's just a, an innocent salt crystal but it's so so small um that the amount of water we have to pump is actually very, very little. And when that salt crystal, when, when nature does all the hard work for us, the, the water vapor in the atmosphere condenses into a cloud droplet, um, that, that salt crystal increases 500,000 times in size. Oh, 500,000, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? And yeah. <laughs> how high do you have to pump those nanoparticles? So not very high at all. What we, we rely on atmospheric mixing to move those particles up, up to the cloud height. So the same way that occurs naturally, obviously, when the waves are breaking, those particles are getting generated just right above the sea surface. We, we spray them a bit higher than that, but really we're relying on the natural mixing of the atmosphere to, to mix those salt crystals and drag them up to the cloud height. Wow. So the, the cloud height would be very low then, would it? Uh, the sorts of clouds that we're targeting for this are uh, uh, low atmospheric boundary layer clouds. So these are uh, clouds that, that form from around uh, 500 metres or so up to about a kilometre and a half high. So this process doesn't create clouds. That's, that's important to understand. So the, the clouds that are just naturally forming, if there are more particles available, more cloud condensation nuclei available when they form, uh, then they're brighter, but they're still sort of fundamentally the same cloud. And so, so the width depends on, on the meteorological conditions of the day. Uh, so sometimes you might have a what's called a stratocumulus cloud layer, which is quite a, a large, uh, fairly consistent uh, layer of cloud. Uh, other times you might have lots of, of small individual clouds forming, uh, uh, the cumulus type clouds. And would they be as effective in reflecting the sun's rays? This is one of the things that, that we're uh, hoping to look into in this program. So no, we, we, we don't think that they will be as effective. Uh, the, the, the sort of flat layers of the marine stratocumulus uh, are widely believed to be the most effective clouds uh, to try and brighten. But in the case of the reef, it, it doesn't necessarily matter if we don't have the very best clouds in the world to brighten, uh, as long as they're good enough. We need, to, we need them to be able to be brightened enough to prevent the coral bleaching. Um, and, and so that's what we think may be the case. So there's both types of cloud form over the reef, but uh, during the summer there is a predominance for the, for the smaller cumulus type, trade cumulus type clouds. But our, our modelling that we've, we've undertaken so far uh, suggests that these are, are suitable to brighten and, and that they can make enough of a difference uh, to avoid a lot of the worst effects of the bleaching. And over what period of time do you conduct these experiments? So the experiments at the moment are, are very, very small scale. We're really uh, sort of working on, on evaluating whether the, or, or developing, if you like, technology that's good enough to, to try this for real in a very limited sense. So there's an enormous difference in scale, I guess, between the experimentation that we're doing now, which, which runs only for sort of a week or two, compared with what you might eventually want to do if, if you tried to implement this one day to to protect coral over a large area. So in the case of the implementation, uh, the, the modeling shows that it's most effective if you do it for a period of several months, sort of preventing the water heating up as much in the fuel in the first place, sorry. So you start 
fairly early in the summer if it if it looks like it's going to be a excessively hot year if there's a marine heat wave starting to develop and you'd, you'd carry it on ideally for a couple of months that gives the maximum cooling um, but again you, you may not necessarily need the maximum cooling depending on the conditions of that particular summer and what are the results so far that you found so I, I think fundamentally what we've discovered so far is that it's, it's a lot more difficult than, than a lot of people thought, I think, to do this. So, so people have been researching the idea of cloud brightening for, for 30 years now, more than 30 years. Um, but it's all been very theoretical research and, and no one's ever really tried to develop technology to actually do it before. And so a, a lot of the work by scientists to date are sort of putting... Uh, cloud brightening into models and and just assuming that you can do it basically and so we, we're taking the other approach where we're, we're starting from the the very bottom end and and trying to develop nozzles and technology and and work out what would be required to scale that up in, in order to achieve um, what people are looking at in the models and so I think one of the things we've discovered is that that that's very very difficult but uh, we are we are making very good progress in that, and we we hope within another year or two to be in a position to be able to, to build a system big enough to test in a very small area and and to look at whether the clouds respond as as all of this modelling over the last thirty years suggest. Ah, so you haven't done any testing so far, physical testing. Oh yeah, we've been doing we've been doing testing, but the the scale that you need to achieve to start influencing the clouds is is quite huge. You need to get the number in my head, something like a thousand trillion droplets per second, for example. Um, <laughs> and so what we're, we're doing at the moment, over two summers, we've, we've tested prototypes. And what we're doing is we're, we're refining the technology to it produces. You need a very certain sized droplet. Uh, and you need to produce those very large numbers. So we're testing different types of technology to, to find the ideal technology then, to then scale up. The other thing we're doing is, is this technology, even, even though we're testing at probably about one-tenth of, of the scale that, that we think we need at the moment, that allows us to measure the sea salt crystal plume that's generated up to tens of kilometres downwind and to also use that to develop our models of what you would then need to, to scale up a system that, that would actually be able to start to cool the reef. So it's still quite early days in our research program at the moment. <laughs> but but no one else has ever done this in the world before, so so it's it's not something that's that's going to be able to be developed overnight or in in just one year sort of thing. It's it's something that's going to be an iterative process over a period of time. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I thought that um, solar radiation management was one of the easier things to do in terms of geoengineering compared to to other things um, like carbon dioxide drawdown or you know other forms of um, radiation management. But even the cloud brightening, which I think has been done in the past, you know, even when you look at what volcanoes do and the exhaust from planes um, provide, there is some information that's been out there for many decades to, to, to give people an idea of what they should be looking at. But yet it, it sounds like it's still very early days in, in terms of your experiment. Yeah, certainly. So, so what's what's very new here is trying to develop the technology to to actually do it in a controlled manner. So, so as you were mentioning, there's 
there's natural analogs, uh, uh, such as volcanoes pr produce a lot of sulfur dioxide, which then goes on to get oxidized into, into very effective cloud condensation nuclei through, through atmospheric uh, chemical reactions that occur to that, that sulfur dioxide. But, but obviously a volcano emits that in, in, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, to be honest, but gigatons of, of gas. And likewise, we're inadvertently brightening the clouds all around the world um, just as the, as the total sum of all the particles that humans are adding to the atmosphere, sort of everywhere, the, the cumulative global pollution of the atmosphere is, is actually brightening the clouds so much that, that estimates are that, that that cooling effect from brightening the clouds offsets up to about 30 or 40% of the global warming that we're otherwise generating. And so that's an, another important aspect of this research is, is understanding those processes is, is very, very important for the global warming budget and, and how that's going to change into the future, the, the, the global heating budget. And so it, that's one of the most poorly constrained things in models predicting how warm the world will, will sort of become under different emissions pathways. So, yeah, while we, while we understand a fair bit about processes, what we don't have is, is technology that's capable of generating those huge amounts of um, cloud condensation nuclei, in this case, from, from seawater, which is, uh, we think, one of the safest ways to produce them. Is that why yours is the first experiment so far that, in the world that's been undertaken? I think so. Probably it's, it's, it's partly the, the challenges of doing it technically and, and also, I, I guess, of course, it's, it's been the wheel so kind of research needs funding, of course, and um, I, I guess we've, we've been lucky in that you know, our, our desire is, is, is to, to help the reef and, and throughout the feasibility phases, which there's been sort of three separate feasibility studies now, they've all found that, that this technology has great potential to help the reef. And so the, the, I think that's why we've been successful in, in progressing beyond just a concept to, okay, let's, let's get out and, and really see whether this can work or not. How do you actually measure the results? So at the moment, we're concentrating on the size distribution and, and looking at how those particles mix out into the environment. And so we have technology that is able to essentially measure those uh, nanoscale particles in the air. We have several different instruments that do that, and we're, we're flying them back and forth on drones so far to measure where those particles go and what concentration they are and, and what size they all are as well, because we produce them in a, in a sort of a size spectrum, and that also changes over time as they interact with the atmosphere. Next year, we, we hope to start using aeroplanes to measure those particles over an even larger area. When we move to the aeroplanes, we'll also start to moving uh, towards sampling the clouds themselves. So we'll have two aircraft. One will fly underneath the cloud to map where the particles are, are going and how they're getting into the clouds. And a second aircraft that'll actually fly through the clouds itself uh, with probes under the wings that measure by that stage the, the size of the cloud droplets. And then some of those aircraft will also do different missions where they fly over the top of the cloud and underneath the cloud and essentially measure the difference in how much light is passing through. So if it is successful and this project comes into being, does that need to be done every year? You know, obviously depending on the weather and the predicted warming cycles. But would it have to be looked at every year? 
So, so our work now is part of the Reef Restoration and Adaptation Program, which is funded by the Great Barrier Reef Foundation uh, and the Australian government. And so that wider program is looking at all sorts of, of different ideas that could be useful to help preserve the reef, essentially, in the face of climate change. And what we hope is that eventually these tools will, as, as they're developed and they're proven and they're uh, reduced to practice, they will become part of a toolkit that's then available to something like the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, uh, who's responsible for managing the reef on behalf of the government, that, that it'll be one of the options essentially in their toolkit that they can deploy sort of as needed. So, you know, at the moment, the reef isn't bleaching every year. And, and so you, you wouldn't necessarily need to deploy cloud brightening every year. There's already um, a lot of work going into globally algorithms that predict when there's a risk of bleaching. So you'd have a strategy, I think, where you monitored those. And when the risk was particularly high over large areas, that might be the sort of time that you'd, you'd look at deploying cloud brightening. Whereas when the risk was lower and perhaps more localised, then, then you might look at deploying some of the other interventions that, that we're working on developing across this whole program. I understand that the ocean is warming all the time around that area. Does that affect the effectiveness of cloud brightening techniques? Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the things that our modelling has has very clearly shown, I think, is that there's there's very much an upper limit to how much you can can brighten the clouds. It's not a case of, of you can just keep adding more particles and get more and more brightening. It's sort of a, a law of diminishing returns, and it flattens out that curve fairly quickly. So it's not a case where this is a, a sort of a, a long term solution, I guess. But if the ocean keeps getting warmer and warmer, and, and and we continue climate change sort of unabated, then the modelling quite clearly shows cloud brightening could only help for a couple of decades. But the positive side of that is that what the modelling shows is that if instead we, we really do get our act together and we're able to meet Paris-type climate targets, then the cloud brightening is enough to, to kind of get us over that hump and essentially buy the reef some time to adapt to the ocean, which is then warming uh, a little more slowly and a little more reasonably under that Paris-type scenario as opposed to if, if we just keep going along business-as-usual type scenario. This as we mentioned before, is a, um, a solar radiation management geoengineering solution. Were there any issues in getting the project approved because it is a geoengineering solution? It's, it's a tricky one. So I guess I, I'm fairly keen not to get bogged down into, into terminology. So, so up until now, geoengineering has sort of been widely defined as, as a technology to intervene in the global climate. And, and although it's the same technology, the scale at which we're applying and the way at which we're applying it, which is, is sort of intermittently and only in response to, to a risk of, of bleaching events and only some years and only for a couple of months and, and only over the Great Barrier Reef directly, which is something like 0.07% of the surface, means that it doesn't sort of fit that technical definition of a geoengineering technology. But of course, if you scaled the same technology up enough and you did it in enough areas and you did it all of the time, then it would be a geoengineering technology. But to answer your question, was it harder? I suppose so. But we, we went through sort of a, I guess, quite a, a rigorous assessment process with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority who manage uh, any sort of research that's done on the reef. So it's, it's one of the most carefully managed marine reserves in all of the world. 
and so uh, you know I, I guess that the assessment was based on on the actual risk of the activity and and of what we were proposing you know rather than an assessment based on whether this is appropriate to do as a geoengineering technology which is something that's quite different there's, there's very different risks and and potential benefits involved and was there any input from the traditional owners in the area Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the entire reef restoration and adaptation program has been developed in consultation with, with traditional owners and we're very, very closely consulting with traditional owners right along the way. So right from sort of the beginning in, in terms of developing concepts and, and how they could be applied to the reef. We, we have a whole part of our program that's focused on engaging with traditional owners as well as other stakeholders and, and then seeking their views on the different technologies and where they see problems, where they see opportunities, and then feeding that back into co-design of the entire program. And in, and in the case of cloud brightening, that, that's obviously been part of that as well. And in fact, traditional owners have been closely involved in actually in, in the experiments that we've done so far. And we, we seek free, prior and informed consent from traditional owners before we do any research work on sea country at all in our program. Right. You, you mentioned before about scaling up in the next couple of years. So what is the time frame for this experiment in total and, and what else are you going to be doing? So there's a, there's a huge amount that we're doing. The program that, that we're sort of running now uh, runs over the next three years, essentially. And, and by the end of that, we, we hope to have, have sort of proved whether the technique can work over the reef or not. As for what we're doing, it's it split across a, a seven different projects, uh, and that's just the, the sort of direct technology part. And then other parts of the reef restoration and adaptation program are looking into things like, you know, the stakeholder acceptability of, of different interventions we're considering for the reef. We have a, a whole part of the programs that's focused on modeling looking at, at how efficient it would work and, and what's the best way to set up a, a system. Uh, there's another project looking at how to power a system from renewable energy, what's the most efficient way to do it with the least environmental impact. We have a, another part that's led by the CSIRO, which is looking into the risks. And so they're, they're doing a lot of modelling of, of different implementations and looking into whether there could be any risk of altering the weather or, or any other risks like that. We have a couple parts of the program that are, are sort of devoted to the technology development itself. How do you scale up a system? How do you make it work? How big do the, do the sort of cloud brightening uh, seawater atomizers need to be, to be and how many do you need to have and how far apart should they be spaced? And then we have another quite large part of the program that's looking into the cloud microphysical processes themselves. So how will they change? How are they best targeted to, to achieve the maximum brightening effect with the, the minimum sort of other changes? That's, that's about it in summary. It's pretty impressive. And it's good to see that the risk management side of it's being investigated as well. Yeah, that's, that's quite crucial, of course, because, um, you know, right across our program, um, you know, the, we, we've recognised from the very start that it's, it's no use developing a, an intervention that we think will, will help the coral if it's not socially acceptable to, to stakeholders of the reef or to traditional owners or, or to the public in general. Um, so it's, it's been a very important part of our research program right from the very beginning. And so we, we've, we've done research and surveys 
uh, across the public. And, and in general, I, I think what that team, what they found in general is that there's a, a sort of a tentative acceptance that this kind of larger scale intervention in the reef is is necessary and, and warranted given the current position that we unfortunately find ourselves in and that there was fairly widespread support for, for doing the research at least, but that there was also a, a, a very large need for the public to be better informed as to the research involved and as to what the uh, eventual uh, sort of benefits and risk trade-offs may be of the various technologies that might be useful. Have you had any negative feedback? Uh, so very little, to be honest. There, there is a, a global uh, anti-geoengineering group who I think have published some, some negative things about our work, but they've, they've never once come and talked to us about it. <laughs> so, so I'd consider them to be fairly ill-informed. In fact, I think they published something along the lines that we're not really doing this to save the reef. We're just doing this because really we want to do cloud brightening for all of the globe or something like that. You know, our, our job as scientists is uh, not to dictate, I guess, the, the sort of the implementation or what should or shouldn't be done, but to develop the understanding so that we fully understand all of the different technologies and what options are available and what the pros and cons of each are. And then it's, it's really a, a sort of a public policy uh, discussion about what we should and shouldn't implement. Well, I guess the results so far have been very promising, I understand, and the feedback has been positive, more than negative. Sounds like you're you're heading in the right direction. Look, I think so. I mean, again, it's, it is still early days, but one of the one of the really encouraging things about the cloud brightening as an intervention is that it preserves the reef sort of as we know it, and and cloud brightening helps to preserve the entire ecosystem and, and not even just the corals, everything else on the reef that also depends on the corals. And so one of the, the sort of exciting things about it is it's one of the very few technologies that actually helps us to preserve what's there as opposed to having to try and sort of pick things that we want to save or, or to have to, even worse, to have to try and restore them later once they're gone. Yes, that's a very good point. Um, is there anything else, Daniel, that I haven't asked that is relevant to this project? I think the most important thing to get across maybe is, is if we go back, because we, we talked about it in technical terms before, but, but just how, how important it, it, it is the result of that modelling that showed that this, and in fact, it, it's shown this across our whole program that all of these interventions we're looking at for the reef, you know, they're not, they're not the final solution, right? The final solution is absolutely that we need to tackle climate change. The sort of the stress on the reef is increasing so quickly with climate change that it's sort of hopeless to sort of try and just deal with the symptoms and, and not do anything about the underlying cause. So there you have it. Confused? It seems that different types of geoengineering experiments are conducted in various parts of the world, and if they are small enough, it seems that it's okay not to have approval. And where would you get approval? And what is the definition of small? Another point that Daniel made was that the current modelling is limited as they are finding out more and more issues as they experiment further. That would mean that more and larger experiments are vital to determine whether such technologies can work at all. His comment that their research found that the public strongly needs to be better informed about these experiments was very interesting. Let's hope that this happens. Thanks to 3CR for hosting this program. 
Radio Skid Row, Professor Raymond Pierre Humbert and Dr Daniel Harrison for their contributions. As you can tell, there are very few rules and regulations regarding geoengineering, so next time we'll discuss the governance issues in more detail. I'm Kay Wenigal, and I look forward to you joining me again then. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.